Welcome to Environment Deep Dive, a series from the Civil Service Environment Network. Through this series, we aim to explain and explore the biggest issues in environmental policy, talking to experts on topics across climate change, sustainable development, natural resources, and biodiversity and ecosystems. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Civil Service Environment Network's Deep Dive podcast, in which we'll be talking about problems facing our oceans and how we can fix them. I'm Justine Solomons Moat, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Hugo Tagholm, the Chief Executive of Surfers Against Sewage, uh, a marine conservation and campaigning charity. An environmentalist, campaigner, and surfer by background, Hugo has been awarded Environmentalist of the Year 2021 by Save the Waves Coalition, as well as an honorary doctorate of science by Exeter University for his services to marine conservation. Hi, Hugo. Uh, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Justine. Yeah, delighted to be here today. And thank you for that very kind introduction. And we're really looking forward to hearing your insight and perspective on this topic. Um, so to kick us off, I thought it'd be useful to kind of get some context and start with the basics. So what are the problems facing our oceans? You know, we know that there are so many aspects of our environment that are under threat from sort of water quality, biodiversity, wildlife, etc. Can you put oceans in this context so how big are the problems um, compared with sort of the myriad of issues that the environment's facing today look I think um, you know first and foremost we you know we all depend on a, a healthy ocean um, the ocean is uh, the, the world's uh, thermostat you know temperature re regulator you know it transports um, you know heat around the world um, um, and it's vital to, to, to billions of people in terms of food and nutrition and their livelihoods and, and their day-to-day -day lives. Um, you know, none of us can survive without a healthy ocean, whether we're in, um, you know, landlocked uh, cities or whether we're living on the coastline itself, like I'm fortunate enough to do down here in, in Cornwall. Um, you know, the, 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 just as our whole environment is that the, the ocean is facing so many huge threats. And I think it's worth saying that, you know, you know up front, the sort of industrialization of the ocean and particularly those extractive industries, industrial fishing, um, drilling for oil, um, the threat of deep sea mining um, and those industries that are, are, are removing and destroying biodiversity, removing and destroying biomass removing or compromising and destroying um, ecosystems are posing a huge um, you know, threat to uh, marine biodiversity and a thriving ocean. Um, the industrial sort of fishing fleet, um, which operates today, um, is the last, um, the last major wild hunt on this on this planet um, and they're using um, ever more fuel um, and energy to find diminishing returns in terms of the fish they catch um, and i think we you know we're in the ocean decade and we really need to tackle that 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 harvesting of, of the ocean in such a such a um you know a colossal way um because because actually it's counter productive in terms of the long-term health of fisheries. But we're an organization that has focused on some of the other big threats. I mean, the, the climate threat is, you know, undeniable for the ocean too, the, the warming of the ocean, the changing in chemistry of the ocean um, because of the absorption of carbon dioxide and other other things that the human um, population is emitting. 
Um, plastic pollution, as we know, since the Blue Planet effect has been one of the really big um, topics that the public has engaged on. The plastic they see in their day-to-day lives is also the plastic that's that's sadly ending up in the, the stomachs of whales and dolphins and turtles and those emotive, enigmatic um, sort of megafauna that, that people have focused on so much um, and, and a place where people have felt that they could take action. We see the, the endless pollution going into our seas, um, sewage and agricultural runoff creating dead zones in the seas around the world, um, sewage pollution taking with it chemicals and antibiotic resistant bacteria and pharmaceuticals. So all sorts of impacts, both from that pollution perspective, but also the sort of extractive and destructive forces that we need to eliminate from large swathes of the sea. And and, and there's hope because we know that the sea can recover and abundance and biodiversity can come back. So if we do the right things in this ocean decade, this most important decade for the ocean, I think we can tackle some of these big, big issues and give a, give a much sort of bigger sort of resilience to, uh, to our own future. That's really helpful. Thanks. It certainly sounds like there's a lot of big issues, but also, as you say, opportunities for us to tackle those. And of the sort of many threats you've just outlined there, what do you think is the most sort of urgent or the most pressing? Naturally, they're all um, significant, but is there one that you think is is particularly urgent at the moment? Well, you, you, we're in a we're in a, a decade. Um, you know, we are in the UN. You know, ocean decade, um, and you know, there, there's lots of moves towards the um, you know the the sort of restoration of, of parts of the sea people are focusing on what, what we're calling sort of blue carbon habitat, seagrass and mangroves and kelp and, and other things that can sequester carbon and create nurseries and sort of breeding grounds for for, for animals, uh, marine animals, um, um, which is all great. You know, I think one of the really big things is to stop the, the destruction of pristine habitats. We've got the big threat of, of um of deep sea mining that you know that should be in my opinion banned permanently um you know we already know what the destruction of pristine habitats does to our own um our own uh, um potential survival on this planet um we we need to see the um the preservation of those those last sort of big bits of wild ocean um we're in the week um, when the final negotiations are happening for the high seas treaty um that that treaty that will protect the 64% of the ocean that's beyond national jurisdiction, that is is a place that we need to, to understand how we protect the ocean much more fully there, um, collectively as a, a global community. We need to make sure that the marine protected areas truly do what they say. Now, we're in a country that that is, is sort of leading in many ways on that, the UK. Um, but... Um, but, you know, of the you know 38% of our waters that are, are part of marine protected areas, I think we've got something like 370 marine protected areas around the coastline. You know, how much is truly protected? How, how much, you know, is enforced? Um, we still see industrial fishing trawlers sailing through marine protected areas. We still see the threat of new oil rigs and drilling um, in or near marine protected areas. We see sewage being pumped out into coastally sensitive areas where people are trying to restore ocean habitats. So we need to, to not only designate where we're protecting in the ocean, but we also need to understand how we're actually enforcing those protections and making sure that um, our, our marine protections enable marine life to thrive. Because where we, where we do... Uh, 
create those conditions, we see marine life rebounding um, amazingly. And there's lots of case studies around the world in Mexico, in the United States, even here around the Lundy Island, where a highly protected approach to marine areas or fully protected even means that uh, marine life can come back. And that has benefits for people fishing nearby. The fishing fleets catch bigger fish and marine life. Um, they have a more sustainable uh, way of, uh, of being able to ensure their catch. So, um, you know, I'm, um, I'm hopeful we can do this, but it's going to take a lot of coordination. And I think it's a priority to really protect big swathes of our ocean. We need to do that 30% by 2030 in a highly or fully protected way, um, just as we do need to do that on the land. That's really interesting. And um, it was interesting to hear what you're saying about if we do get this right, what the results have been. On the flip side, if we get this wrong, if we don't tackle this problem, what do you think the longer term impacts are going to be? Well, look, the, the, the sad irony is, is, is um, you know, if we carry on sort of fishing and using the seas as, as we are, we'll, we'll run out of we'll just run out of fish and we'll run out of, um, you know, a, a enough enough protein for the world to survive on. You know, the, the protections that the world needs now will actually ensure that, you know, the sustainability of both the industry and the people that depend on, on the industry. And if we get it wrong, we're going to have the tragedy of the commons where where we actually just, you know, fight until we get to the last fish uh, as we will on land too to the last tree so so i think it is really important that we we do unite now this is about collaboration this is about cooperation it will be about compromise we need to understand where we fully protect the ocean but then we also need to understand where we sustainably use the ocean and so those two things that 30 percent must be coupled with 70 percent that's used in a much more sustainable way that gives equal opportunities for people to access um, you know, the, the fishing rights and the resources they need um, in nations maybe less um, less fortunate than the UK um, and um, that is fair and equitable and not just about a gold rush where the wealthiest, most able countries can can take the resources fully. So, you know, um, the, the, the UK has done really good work on the overseas territory, marine protected areas. Um, we need to see more um, more action for the enforcement of our own marine protected areas and more restrictions on those big industries that I've mentioned that are doing the damage. Industrial trawling, not not the sort of artisan fishing and the small inshore boats that, that sustain communities, but the big industrial factory ships that cause havoc, not just for the life they catch to consume, but also for other sea life. Um, we need to look at, you know, this 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 paradoxical situation of the energy crisis, and this this rush to try and drill more oil in the North Sea, um, you know, something that is close to many marine protected areas and also many important fisheries. We need to tackle the the plastic pollution crisis. Um, the government, despite all of the rhetoric since twenty. 18 or well, 2017 when the Blue Planet first aired, you know, there's been a sort of a glacial pace on some of the interventions that could really stop plastic pollution at source, things like a, a, a full deposit return system, um, you know, or, on plastic bottles and drinks containers. So, so actually, you know, what we want to want to see is not just the ambition from from government, um, but we need to actually see the, 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 the pace and urgency of implementation, because what we do know, because there's always a concern that we're going to get things wrong, that government will get things wrong, that the public won't be satisfied, that industry will be damaged. But we know what we're doing at the moment. The status quo is going wrong already. So we need to we need to, to challenge that and we need to take some risks to put nature 
um, in sort of the, the driving seat rather than, um, you know, big business as it were. Um, and that's a challenging thing for us to do. But I take some heart from the dress rehearsal of the pandemic. You know, overnight, we had restrictions put on individuals um, in, in this country and around the world. New laws were passed to control people. Now, actually, if gov- government would have thought before that and people would have thought that that could never have happened, that we would never have accepted those things. So I don't think the same can't happen for nature, that government can't make big, bold and dramatic decisions that means that we do change the way we live. It might change how some industries operate. It might actually put some damaging industries out of business. But that is perhaps what nature needs. So we need to be bold with this. The incremental and the the, the sort of the incremental pace of change with the systems as we have them clearly isn't delivering the sort of the, the, the rather dramatic results that we will need to put nature first. We're we're now um, you know almost sort of three years in really to the, the the UN decade for the ocean for the ocean, and we need to go faster. We need to get to twenty thirty and really be in full sort of implementation mode. We need to be be really winning some of these battles, not just agreeing that we want to win them. Absolutely. And you mentioned a couple of times sort of particular areas where the UK is perhaps doing, you know, some quite good work, as you said, perhaps more could be done as well. But how does the UK compare globally in in your view to com- compared with other countries? How well do you think it's sort of looking after its ocean generally? Well, look, as I say, there's a there's a, there's a difference between the sort of rhetoric and what we have on paper and the reality of what we see happening around our, you know, around our shores. You know, the, the, the continual sort of dumping of sewage into our rivers and coastline, just 14 percent of our rivers meet good ecological status. Our bathing waters, despite the improvements that we're proud to have helped deliver, still languish at the bottom half of the European League table. We see the plastic pollution crisis going nowhere quickly. Um, you know, we're still dragging our feet over interventions like deposit return systems. We've got great, great statistics on paper. 38% of our waters protected in marine protected areas, 370 around the country. But are they really being enforced? Are they really being successful? Where can we look to the the, the, the top, you know, the top performing MPAs and, and how they were implemented how they've been successful and how they're creating sustainable jobs, sustainable fisheries and a sustainable future for our seas. And so I think there's a lot more work to be done. We've seen some great you know, overseas work with the, the Blue Belt initiative and leading on the sort of 30 by 30 initiative, um, signing countries up around the world. It's been great to see that sort of leadership um, positioning. But we need to make sure that the people understand where the impact is and where these things are truly working. And we see the recovery of our oceans and also how we can demonstrate where we're stopping big industry from harming our seas, because that's where we're going to win in the biggest way. And some of that will come with boldness. It will come with a a pace that we've probably not seen politically previously and we're seeing how dramatic nature can accelerate it, its pace of change and I think the scientists and politicians were caught unawares when we've just had the the huge heat waves that we've had that's been killing crops around Europe there's been of course some of these heat domes have been killing ocean life in the near shore we've seen forest fires even here in Cornwall and Cornwall is one of the wettest places in the whole of the country uh, and these things are a wake-up call and we need to say that we need to move we need to move faster on these issues. It's all very well 
going from meeting and conference and summit to summit and having good agreements. But really, we need to see where where the investment comes to um, to restore nature, protect big nature. We need to stop killing mature ecosystems. Um, those are the ones that we need most mature, complex e ecosystems at sea and on land. Um, and we need to make sure that we give nature a fair fighting chance um, to, uh, to, to recover. And we can do it. We know we can do it. We have the resources and the technology. We've proved we can find billions, if not trillions of pounds for bankers, for, for COVID vaccines, for all sorts of things. We now need to find not millions for nature, but billions and trillions to restore this nature and create a green new economy or should I say a blue new economy that can support everyone fairly and equally and leave no one behind. That's really interesting. Thanks, Hugo. And I think we've talked sort of a lot about the problems so far in our oceans. We will move on to solutions, um, which I'm looking forward to hearing your views on. But first, I thought it would be interesting just to hear a bit more specifically about sort of um, surface against sewage and you and your organisation's work. Um, so one question we always ask our sort of experts and campaigners we get on, on our podcast is sort of how they got to where they are and what's their personal sort of connection or story in relation to the area they sort of work on. Um, so can you maybe tell us a bit briefly about sort of how and why you became chief executive of Surface Against Sewage? Yeah, like um, I think it's always easy as, you're, um, as you retrofit a story to, to, to make it very serendipitous and, and sort of perfect. Um, and so I'll sort of, I'll sort of do that, but um, it probably was way less perfect than I'll, I'll, I'll make out. Um, um, you know, actually I first got involved in, in service against which back way back in 1991. Um, I didn't found the organization. I, I took part in a surf competition, not far from where I live in Cornwall. Um, I was a Londoner. I'm a Londoner born and bred who lives in Cornwall now. Um, and I took part in a surf contest down here, um, a, a contest called Surf to Save. It was a different era, different time. And the contest supported this newly formed sort of rebellious NGO, Surfers Against Sewage, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth and various other um, brilliant charities. Um, and I um, and I met some of the founders there. It was a very different entity to, to what we are today. Um, and I went off and I did my career. I went to X University. I, um, I, I went into... PR and communications with charities um, early on. Um, and then I started working with um, Sarah Brown, Gordon Brown's wife, running her children's charity, Piggy Bank Kids, which is now called Their World. Um, but I'd, throughout it, surfing and, and the environment were, were always one of my passions. Um, I, I, I was with her for a good number of years. And then and then I, um, I, I took up a role at the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Um, and, and not long after that, only a, a year and a half or so, I... The, the opportunity came up to, to take the helm at Surface Against Sewage. It was 2008. Um, the organisation wasn't in a, a, a great shape. Um, I came in with good sort of charity experience as a surfer and environmentalist to, to rebuild it. I had just a handful of staff and, and not many resources. And I, I, I hope that I've, I've built it into one of the country's leading marine conservation organisations, uh, very focused on plastic pollution, water quality, um, on the ocean and climate sort of nexus. We we mobilise about 150,000 volunteers a year. We've got an incredible network of, of, um, of regional reps around the country, brilliant permanent volunteers who lead communities with us. I've got a brilliant team of 30 campaigners um, at our headquarters down in Cornwall and an amazing board of trustees covering sort of business expertise through to environmental leadership and ocean expertise. So it's been, a, you know, it's been a sort of a great journey. Um, 
but always anchored in the experiences people have at the beach. I think that is the, the, the point of difference for SES. We, we are surfers. We are people who love the ocean. We are people who use the ocean. Maybe not always surfers, but um, many surfers in my team and swimmers and, and, and ocean lovers in various ways and very connected to the environment that we campaign to protect every day. We've been successful, I hope, in sort of a legislative way, helping deliver the 10p bag charge, helping deliver the plastics tax, helping deliver the bans on various plastic amendments in the environment bill on water quality, um, on plastics and single use items too. Um, a big win on deposit returns, which we're we're pushing for the implementation for in a much bigger way as soon as possible. Um, so yeah, we're um, you know we're we're always trying to give our supporters voice and agency. We're about uniting their voice and trying to change the systems around us. Whilst we we always want people to be able to take individual action and decide to to to, to improve their own sort of footprint or reduce their own footprint on the planet. The truth of the matter is, is we need to change the systems around us to truly win these fights in the, the, the scale we need. We need to reform the systems that simply aren't delivering the protections for the planet at the moment. And we see that most starkly through plastics and sewage at the moment, but also, of course, carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere every day with the cars we drive, the planes we choose to fly in, the industries we choose to support, the products that we we consume the, you know, the, the, the choices we can make are, are are also, you know, what we eat, whether it's fish or, or meat and the impacts they have. But 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 we can see much more sustainable systems are needed. And some of these damaging industries should be curtailed. And I always give an example that springs to mind. When I was a boy, um, uh, you know, smoked salmon was a was a day, uh, not a daily treat. It was a Christmas treat. It was expensive. Um, it was something that that. Um, that you couldn't have every day. But now, because of salmon farms, people have it every day in their bagel. But but salmon farming is hugely destructive, often located in or near marine protected areas too. The chemicals they use, the antibiotics they use, that it takes, I believe, seven pounds of wild fish caught to produce one pound of uh, farm salmon. And this is a ludicrous, unsustainable way of producing fish at the moment. So we really need to reform some of these things that are having... A, 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 a huge toll on the planet. So this isn't just about plastics. This isn't just about sewage. This isn't just about carbon dioxide. This is about the whole way we're living. And, and we need to find a way of, of, of tackling our, our consumption fetish um, and moving towards a, a system that is truly circular, that, that, that is more equal in terms of distribution of, of, of resources um, and allows, uh, allows nature the space it needs on this planet, particularly in the ocean, to recover. So thanks, Hugo. That was really interesting to hear about Surfs Against Sewage and your sort of story. Um, I'd be interested to hear sort of what the surface perspective is on sort of problems facing our ocean. You know, you talked about the problems sort of earlier, but on a practical level, if we were to go out surfing, you know, on your local beach in Cornwall, say, what are we going to be seeing or experiencing out there that sort of like brings those problems to life and affects sort of surfers or, or people using the beaches? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, it's a good question. I mean, there's no doubt that if you're a surfer, beach user, water user uh, along the coastline, you're going to you're going to walk along tide lines that are filled with um, with plastic pollution. You know, whether it's microplastics underfoot or bigger piece of plastic, you almost can't go to a beach and and and, and not see it. 
Um, so plastic pollution is a really big issue. Um, you know, we see also that the, the issue of water quality and as surfers and, and swimmers, you know, we, we do see the impacts of the sewer overflow network here in the UK. Um, and that's bringing with it all sorts of different pathogens. The things that are tested for in the bathing water regime here, but also other emerging threats. We did a big study with the European Centre for the Environment and Human Health that showed that that surfers are three times um, have three times the levels of antibiotic resistant bacteria in their guts as the background population. Now, this is one of the big emerging threats alongside climate change and terrorism, other things in society. Antibiotic resistance is a really big threat and serious issue. And so clearly surfers are being exposed to it more through the routes into the water, whether that's down rivers from farming or from our pharmaceutical industries and, and use in in society. So, you know, that there are big things that we see um, sort of appearing and emerging. We'll, you know, sometimes people describe, um, you know, surfers or, or regular water users as a marine indicator species. We've seen people use the water a lot testing their, their, their blood for plastics too, whether it's come from, from the water or not. You know, people are finding microplastics in, in blood for the first time. So all sorts of different things that you might might pick up. But, you know, the experience of, of being in the ocean and in nature is a powerful motivator. And, and I, uh, you know, it's, it's often said in our space that people protect what they love. Um, I'm not sure if that was a Jacques Cousteau quote originally, but, uh, but you know, the, the point being that, you know, this exposure to nature and the exposure to the issues is a great motivator for action. And we would hope that, you know, that, that people who do that, whether you're a surfer or not, um, are kicked, you know, kicked into action from their experiences on the coastline. You know, just being a surfer doesn't mean you're an environmentalist, but if you're a surfer and you are aware of the problems around you and you take action, then you do suddenly become a sort of a powerful advocate for change. And, and that's what we're here to help identify, find, amplify and use to to talk to government, to civil servants, to all sorts of different stakeholders who can help deliver the change that that, that we need. And as a campaigning organisation, you know, we can be pretty binary about things and we can keep quite tenaciously at, you know, what's happening. But it's all based in the experiences, the facts and the science that come from the front line. And that front line is really the beach. That's really interesting. It does sound like surface and beach users of all types are sort of on the front line of these issues. Um, but what is it sort of you think about the surfing community in particular that sort of helped to, you know, nurture this cause and essentially create an organisation like Surfers Against Sewage? Uh, you, look, it's a good question. I'm not totally sure. I'm not totally sure why. I mean, there, there's lots of surfers that do work with us. We represent many more people than surfers now today with the, the, the reach we have. But, you know, from a core perspective, and I can probably only talk for myself, you know, I think that there is a there is a sort of a maverick spirit that goes within the, the sort of community. There's the same that goes, you know, with surfing and, and sort of campaigning. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a sort of a great motivator because of the experiences we have around the, the, the coastline. So we see some of these things live and direct. You know, I've sadly seen the entanglement of, you know, dolphins and seals and sea life down here. You know, we've we've walked regularly along, you know, tidelines that are really filled with plastic pollution. We, you know, we're campaigning endlessly on the issue of water company discharges, which are so pertinent today after the weather we've been having. So, you know, it's, it's those things that we're exposed to that, 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 that drive our our campaigns absolutely and kind of still on the subject of of campaignings what are some of the challenges you see in sort of engaging people 
on this issue. Um, you know, you mentioned yourself, you're sort of originally from London, but but sort of moved to the coast. It's easy to see why sort of surfers and coastal communities would have, you know, a real interest and engagement on this issue. But do you find it sort of challenging to engage people who are sort of living in towns and, and cities on the issue of oceans? Um, yes and no. Look, I think you've got to decide on who you need to engage to create the change that you want to create. You know, the, the notion that any group, whether you're a surfing group um, or enviro surf group like SAS or whether you're, um, you know, Greenpeace or whether you're, um, you know, the Marine Conservation Society, the notion that you're going to appeal to everyone and get everyone involved is, is sort of fanciful. You know, the, the key is how do you get the people who can, who can make the decisions involved? How do you target those people and how do you use your community to get to them? Or how do you create tactics within campaigns that can deliver your ultimate goals? And I think that's the key. You know, we, our goal is not to get every surfer involved in what we do. Our goal is to make sure that we can, you know, shift the dial and change policy and legislation to better protect our ocean and planet. And so that's why these these processes, the Environment Bill, um, the High Seas Treaty, the the, uh, the storm overflow action plan, the, the campaign around deposit returns. So that's why it's so important to engage the community we do have and target the decision makers, whether it's a secretary of state for the environment or a, a water company boss or whoever it might be, to really look at how we drive change because it will it will be different from 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 campaign to campaign, but you can reach a sort of critical mass with whichever campaign. You're, you're running and that that's the aim so we always i mean i think the sea's pretty aspirational and all sorts of brands use surfing for their marketing guinness and many others um you know and and i think you know it's got a it's got a, a factor that people tend to like and maybe represents a freedom um something that's slightly you know away from the day-to-day -day struggles that we all have with you know pressures of work and and family life and then the economy as it is today with inflation skyrocketing but um but you know the 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 real knack is is using the tools that you have whatever organization you have to to access those decision makers so um so yeah we try our best that brings us on really nicely actually to our last topic which is sort of solutions you've already mentioned a few sort of um things you know you would target or potential levers but what, in your view, is sort of the most powerful lever or, um, um, you know, tactic to, to use? You know, we could have stronger legislation or enforcement. Um, there's also been suggestions that, you know, heads of water companies perhaps should go to prison um, for, for sort of breaches. Or do we need more data? What is sort of the most powerful lever from your perspective? Look, I think data is really useful, but let's Let's be also honest. I think we've probably got enough data in many of these spaces to know we've got a plastic pollution crisis or a sewage pollution crisis or a climate crisis and emergency. You know, and the, the truth now is how do we how do we take action and how do governments unite on action? And, um, you know, I was encouraged at, you know, COP26 to, to hear you know, some of the commitments, although some of that is now being derailed by the war in Ukraine and, and the, the energy crisis and, and everything else. Um, you know, we, I think we have to accept that, that we have to create the right systems and structures around people for them to be able to operate sustainably. Um, individual choice, much as I understand um, business loves it and to a degree politicians love it, is not going to come to the salvation at the scale we need for this planet. Um, we need to be told, just as we were through the pandemic, um, 
you know, the systems that we can use and things we can and can't do to an extent. Because um, I think, um, you know, we've seen that people will change behaviours at huge scale in, in really unexpected ways if, if they really need to. And so I think that, that I would have laughed in, in February 2020, um, I would have laughed in the face of any politician who told me at that stage or who could have told me at that stage that I wouldn't see my parents, my friends, my family. I remember because I had to do an international trip to the States. Um, I remember my, my wife saying to me, don't go. They're going to shut down airlines. And I was like, never, never going to happen. And I squeaked back. I squeaked back from the States just in time. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to be realistic about the, the, the scale of the changes that do need to happen. And um, we need, you know, we, we, we need to, to see a radically different society. We need a Green New Deal that puts nature first or a Blue New Deal, as I would call it. Um, we need to, to take some decisions about some of the, the industries that, that, that need to be called into question. Now, there are some vital things for us to, to, to maintain, of course, but there are probably many superfluous industries that that we and products that we can we can now pass greater judgment on. I'm sure that when whaling was replaced or usurped by oil, sadly, um, and 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 the industry was closed down. And I'm sure that when the whaling moratorium came on, that the whaling and whaling sort of industry and, and communities were up in arms about it. Sure. But these things do also have to happen. So look, we, we're going to see a, a really radical decade. And I think we need to we need to see this a transition to renewable energy, the the, the decommissioning of or, or the, the the moratorium on on new oil exploration in in sensitive areas of the planet. Um, you know, maybe carbon budgets that 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 can really start to 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 to, to tackle the issue of of these these huge emissions society is producing. Um, we need to see more action on plastics. We need to see the end, not just of, of harmful fishery subsidies, and the World Trade Organization made some headway on that, but just not enough. We need to end harmful fishing subsidies. I believe that global fishing subsidies are, are worth more than the global fishing catch is worth. So we live in a, a very awkward time from that perspective. We need to end harmful plastic subsidies. We need to you know, stop allowing big business to ride roughshod over nature. We need a new way of working with the planet, circularity, um, sustainability at the heart of everything. We need to make sure that we don't create a world where just the richest survive and we create ghettos of rich and poor as the, as the environment is further depleted. We need to, to really create a new way of, of thinking. And I do believe that people are prepared for radical changes. Um, we've seen that through the pandemic, I say again. But we can see it again, and and it's coming down the it's coming down the the sort of the track faster than we have expected. We've seen the pressure that the Ukrainian war is putting on food security. Now this year's crop, after the the extreme weather conditions, may also add even more pressures to that. And global food security, and even food security in in our own sort of country. So I think I think we need to to see a, a, a and I think radical is often. It dressed up sort of negatively. We need to see a real decade of progressive, different thinking and a pace of execution that, 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 that is fit for the challenge ahead. We've, we know that governments can do it because we've seen it through the pandemic. We know that people can unite in a big way. It wasn't perfect, but it showed that overnight 
funds can be mobilized, that, that action can be taken. We saw it in 2008 with the global financial crisis, billions, if not trillions of dollars found to prop up an industry. Now, look, we're, we're talking just low hundreds of millions at times for the ocean. We need to find much more and much faster to do what we need to do. So, you know, I'm always I don't think you can be a campaigner without being optimistic. We can see how nature can recover, given the chance. We have to highly protect big parts of our ocean and land. We have to make sure we end really harmful fishing practices that are really are really not worth their weight in fish. Um, And we need to we need to make sure that we we don't leave those poorest communities behind or or steal their natural resources from them to prop up um, the richest sort of economies and communities. So so, um, you know, a a big, a huge task ahead. But um, but I think, uh, you know, we we you know, we, we, we can delve deep back into the wartime spirit, the blitz spirit of this country. And I think that is what will unite people as, as the, the sort of crisis continues to unfold. And we need to be bold in, in how we come together to tackle it together. That's great. That's really interesting to hear your sort of vision for the future for oceans. And um, obviously, at the time we're speaking, we're anticipating a new prime minister and a new government um, in the coming weeks. So what do you want to see from them specifically or what will surface um, against sewage be, be calling on them to do? Are there any sort of specific policies or things you think should be sort of top of their entree in this area? Well, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, and like I already, you know, we have concerns. Um, you know, we have a, 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 a government and um, a leadership contenders that, that are very openly talking about a deregulation economy deregulation which is a, a you know a really you know and this, this sort of this this mantra of cutting red tape which is really about cutting protections for the planet and for people and uh, and easing easing the regulatory burden on businesses now that's very concerning because we already know that the impacts that the 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 business is having on 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 the ocean and on on our environment. You know, we would call, and, and I'm sure that once um, either one of the the contenders, um, Liz or Rishi, is is in post, you know, there's going to be a, a national call pretty quickly for a general election, and it's it's not far down the line. And we would want to see manifestos that include a commitment to highly protected marine areas at a much bigger scale. We need to achieve this 30% goal by 2030, not just. 38% on paper, which they may defer to. We need to see the action on plastics actually coming to fruition and the successful deposit return schemes and other interventions quickly following that. We're, we're in the in the negotiation period for the Global Plastics Treaty and we need to see the UK setting out a, a benchmark, a toolkit of how that can be achieved to uh, achieve a, a lower um, you know, plastic pollution um, uh, weight on our environment. We need to we need to end profiteering um, regional monopolies in the water industry that are are putting their 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 uh, profits ahead of the environment. Um, and we need to to look at some of those most damaging of industries: offshore extractive industries, um, you know, moratorium on deep sea mining, um, industrial fishing fleets sailing through our our marine protected areas. We need to end these sorts of ludicrous um, industry, you know, sort of behaviours that are, are are so damaging to our seas. You know, our first beneficiary as a, a, an NGO is is the ocean. We always have to have the ocean at the heart of of, of any decision we make, and um, we know that it can't sustain some of the impacts that it's currently being subjected to. 
Thank you. That sounds like quite a to-do list for the next Prime Minister in government. Well, look, yeah, part of it. It's only the start. So sadly, we've come to the last um, question in our conversation. Um, and it's a question we ask sort of all of our guests um, from various fields. And um, it's what messages do you have for civil servants? So they are sort of the main uh, listeners of this podcast. So we'd be interested to hear if you've got any sort of call to actions for them or, or messages you'd want them to take away. Um, obviously, you know, civil servants work sort of across all different departments in various roles from sort of policymakers, directors, lawyers, etc. But um, what would you like them to take away today? Well, look, I mean, how can we create policies that, that, um, that do put nature first? And how can we be bold to, to make sure that that policies are implemented fully and effectively at the pace that, that nature needs. You know, that, that's the, the task at hand. There's an urgency. And that's not, um, that's, um, you know, always a risk. And we understand, you know, in policymaking, in, in legislation, there needs to be a measured, considered um, discussion. There's always compromise. But we know the compromise that we're making at the moment is losing nature very, very quickly. Um, we have a biodiversity crisis, a climate crisis, a plastic pollution crisis. And so, you know, are the policies we're making fit for purpose? If they are, are they being implemented quickly enough? You know, and how can we really create a, a new culture of decision making that is, is bold, um, that, you know, could get things wrong, but we know we're already getting things wrong in the other model. So let's 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 be bold. And how do we expedite? some of these these processes to to let our seas flourish again to um hold big industry to account and um and um and create a, a truly sustainable sort of society so yeah you know we're we're here to to help push for that um we're here to work together with with policy makers um and uh with all with all manner of, of civil servants to, to to push this agenda forward in this most important of environmental decades Great. I think that gives us all something to to think about. Um, so unfortunately, I think that brings us to the end of our time today. Um, so all that remains to be said is um, thank you, Hugo. It's been so interesting um, and insightful to hear from you today about ocean problems and solutions. So um, thank you again for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this Environment Deep Dive. You can head to CSUN online for more content, events and networking opportunities. Make sure to subscribe to us on Twitter, YouTube and your favourite podcast app so you can keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon.